Last week, we looked at uh, God keeping his promises. That's what he does. He can't help it. That's who he is. And so just a, a, a quick refresher, because we covered a lot last week. Um, wanted to give you Ezra, Nehemiah's. Remember, those are kind of one book, as we'll see. There's six themes <clears throat> that comes through this, and we'll just kind of go through those again. Uh, first one is God's plan of redemption comes through the exiles. The folks we're going to study today, they are the legitimate heirs of Israel. Don't forget that. They're the ones. Very small, but we'll see. <clears throat> Number two, a call to, to be separate from pagan practices and peoples. Number three, the Bible is the only book by which to live. Number four, worship is to be done for the Lord and according to His Word. We covered all that. The fifth one, which I, I really didn't say anything about, we just, I think I skipped over that, and that is prayer is simply the fruit of trusting in the Lord. I'm going to hit you with something right off the bat. But if you have a poor prayer life, then my guess is you're trusting either in yourself or in creation instead of the Creator. And so I can relate to that. Um, who had the best prayer life as far as we know? <laughs> Jesus Christ, right? Why? Because He trusted the Father. And so, so many times our prayer lives are so shoddy because we're trying to get through this on our own. And we think, well, I'll just pray, pray as in, in a case of emergency, break glass, but I don't think anything's really going to happen here. Now, the prayer life is all about trust. So, finally, number six, and that really is the main theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, is the Lord keeps His Word, and He does it specifically by rebuilding the temple, the people, and the wall. As a side note, is there any hope of restoring the Davidic kingdom and being a light to the nations for these people? Yes. But it's going to come through proper worship and right living. We could even say that today at Grace Church. Is there any hope of us being a light to the nations? I mean, we are called to be a light to the nations. We would say proper worship, right living. And so today, we're going to see the first return Remember, there's three returns, there's three rebuildings. The first return, 538 to 515 B.C., and we'll see a guy named Zerubbabel come up. Before we see that, we'll see a couple of other characters that are hard to say their names, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Now, you may think, wow, 70 years these people have been wanting to get out of captivity. I bet when God says, go, they all just pick up and leave, Right? wrong. The huge percentages of people that did not leave Babylon is astounding, as we'll see. And yet the Lord commands it. Um, I was just in the understanding grace class. If you think somehow that me uh, somehow gets, out, gets the option to go to the understanding grace class, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I have to go too. So uh, well, one thing I love that Rodney said is he said, we answer the questions here at Grace as, what does the Bible say? And you know what's so wonderful about that statement, but what's so sad about that statement is why in the world should a church ever have to say that? It should be a given. If we are God's people, we're going to listen to what God says. We're going to go by that, or at least struggle as we seek to follow His will. 
It doesn't mean there's not differences of opinion in certain theological aspects, of course, but when the Bible's clear, we say, yes, sir. And so uh, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about the Jews leaving to go back to Jerusalem? Well, I'll give you a couple of statements. Isaiah 48, 20, God says, go out from Babylon. He, he goes further and he says, flee, F- flee from Chaldea, which is another name for Babylon. Declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it and send it out in the, to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse eight, he says, flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans. Get out of here. Uh, Let me ask you this. Is there a book of the Bible that God's name is not even mentioned in it? And it's really a picture of incredible grace to a disobedient people. Yes, it's the story of Esther. And Esther and Mordecai are heroes, and they should be, but only because of God's grace. Because when you take a look, you go, what are y'all doing there? You should be back home. So I'm going to give you seven reasons why most of the Jews chose not to return. And then we'll go into our text. Number one, the families, uh, there were some families, I'm certain, with with disabled children or perhaps people that were too old. Daniel, by the time of Cyrus's reign, is in his 80s. Um, So they did not return. Number two, the journey back to Israel would be dangerous and long. Y'all, it was 900 miles. It would take four months for you to get there. Number three, the difficult work it took to rebuild a city and a nation. You got to figure if you're a Jew, you're going back to rubble. You're not going back to a big city of Jerusalem. You're going back to houses and rubble and just roads were terrible and uh, had people ready to rob them on the way. Uh, number four, the land of Israel was now not their own. I mean, they're not going back to an independent Israel or Judah. They're going back to the backyard of Persia. Number five, many enemies, many enemies. When you read the story of Esther, you'll see the rise of something called anti-Semitism, and it's still with us this day. And uh, they hate the Jews, and they began to feel it. Number six, uh, it's been so long since they were in the land. I mean, think about it like this. If you're uh, of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, you've not been back to your former country in 70 years. If you were in the 10 northern tribes, you were taken over by the Assyrians, you haven't been back in 183 years. So you don't even know the language anymore. We know by history that once the Jews... Uh, were taken into Babylon, they stopped speaking Hebrew, by and large. They picked up Aramaic. So, if you will, I did a study on this because I'm a nerd. But when the Browns came to Texas, it was 1837. It's 186 years. We just came from Tennessee, so we didn't go from another country like many of y'all and your ancestors did. But if you can imagine when I come before you and say, Um, folks, I've decided to leave grace. This is not true, by the way. But I've decided to leave grace, and you would say, why? And I said, well, I want to go back to my old country, Tennessee. And you say, 
did you, were you born there? I, no, 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 no. But my great, great, great grandfather did. And uh, it's now it's been 186 years and we're going back home. <laughs> you would mock me, you would laugh at me and you had a good reason to do so because this is the way the Jews looked at their fellow Jews. What are you doing going back home? This is your home. You don't even speak the language of the land anymore. I mean, can you imagine the family discussions? The huge majority that would refuse to leave Babylon and those small contingent that left, the troubles that you're going to have, you're going to have to sell all your possessions, sell your house, give it away. You're going to go back to people that don't even know you anymore. And yet, what do we see last chapter, or rather last sermon? The Spirit of the Lord stirred up Cyrus to fulfill the prophecy and set the Jews free. Now, we see the Spirit of the Lord is stirring up his people to do, to go home. So let's go straight into the text. Chapter 1, verse 5 of Ezra. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So what you see before you are three groups. You see Levites, you see priests, and you see the heads of Judah and Benjamin. Now keep in mind, these are the grandkids or the great-grandkids of the people that have been taken into Babylon. But I want you to note what Scripture says. They are the heads of the fathers, literally in the Hebrew. These are men. Now, God, in his loving kindness, uses men and women throughout the history of the church, the history of the world, to accomplish his will. Uh, when you consider how God greatly used women, uh, it's interesting. Christ broke the social mores of his time because he had women disciples. Question, how many rabbis had women disciples? Answer, none. He did that. So there were many reasons they would look kind of strangely at Christ, and that would be one of them. He would even have women that would come along, and he would uh, teach them, and they would learn, and they su even supported the ministry. You think of the strong and effective roles in the church played by Mary and Martha, Salome, Mary Magdalene, and yet we also see the Lord calls men to take leadership among his people in the church and in the home. I mean, if I could just kind of go off script for a moment. When you consider the TV and the movies that we watch about the men, in particular the dads, what do they look like? Stupid, lazy, passive. They say things like to their kids, whatever your mom says. And certainly we don't in any way denigrate the role of the mother, how important that is. But Ephesians 6.4 tells the fathers, train up your children. Do not provoke them to anger, but train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Tells the fathers that. And yet too many of us dads, we just sit back. But the Bible doesn't call you to sit back and be like our first father, Adam, as his wife ate of the tree. And the Bible's very clear, he was right there with her calls us to be the servant leader that God calls us to be. And these men are leading. 
And he says, uh, talks about of Judah, of Benjamin, the priests and Levites arose. So here we have three of the 12 tribes listed, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Now, this is going to kind of scramble some of your minds for a moment, so just stay with me. Levi was one of the 12 tribes, but is typically not listed as one of the 12. Why? Well, it's because they served in the temple of the Lord. And you go, well, how does that work out in the number 12? Well, Joseph had the double blessing, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and those two were considered the two tribes. So, just suffice it to say, they're called the 12 tribes of Israel, but there really was 13 in the mix because Levi was simply for the Lord's service. So here it is. We have the post-exilic, post-exile people of the Lord. There they are. Um, now, you may wonder at this point, but what about the 10 lost tribes? I would really, really encourage you not to use that phrase because that's actually not in the Bible, and you say, well, is it true? Well, not exactly. We see even in Scripture in the time of 1 Chronicles 9, verse 3, Ephraim and Manasseh, one of the two of the northern tribes, some of them go to the south uh, when the nation was split between Israel and Judah. We also see in 2 Chronicles eleven sixteen that there were some from all the tribes that would go down to this separate uh, area called Judah, named after the predominant tribe there. So I think what you have is ultimately uh, there are some from every tribe that get absorbed into Judah. And therefore, later on, they're not called the tribe of Judah, they're called the Jews. Now, just to be clear, did many of the Israelites stay in Babylon? Yes, they did. Great numbers, as we'll see in just a moment. Let's continue on. It says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So God is calling them to rebuild the temple, but you're catching the driving force, aren't you? It doesn't say, and the people decided to go up and build. No, no, no. It says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. I want you to see two things happening here. Number one, God is the first mover. He's the one who moves. The Lord does not wait on man. Why doesn't the Lord wait on man to come to him? Because man never will come to him. He's dead in his trespasses and sins, the Bible says in Romans 3. There's no one who seeks after the Lord. So Lord is the first mover. We see that. And the second thing I want you to see is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, which is an incredible relief. It should be to all of us that the Lord didn't look down the quarters of time and saw that we were cute and, and funny and were really sharp and kind of could get this Bible together and we would just step out on faith and trust him. No, no, no. He looked down the quarters of time and saw a graveyard, dead people. And in his kindness and mercy, he drew many of us to himself. I love what Jesus says about sovereignty. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. I heard a guy say one time, 
you know, isn't that amazing that the Lord puts such value on us that, that he, he, he knows us and he knows if even one of us would fall. And I would say that's really not good doctrine. It's not that the Lord puts so much value on us. It's showcasing his great love for us. Remember, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That doesn't seem like very good value to me. And he's describing that in regards to us. But he says, yet he knows us. He even knows us by name. We see a picture of sovereignty in Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The books have been written. We just haven't read them. We're in the midst of reading them in this life, if you will. Derek Thomas, an old Welshman, put it this way. Every event, every event of every circumstance is the outcome of the sovereign overruling of God. That includes the actions of an otherwise godless king, Cyrus, of a tyrannical empire. What a blessing it is to know that even in the darkest places, the Lord can overrule politicians and leaders to turn events around to favor the church of Jesus Christ. You see, God had a plan, and not even Cyrus could impede it. In fact, he was part of it. So, even as we love God's sovereignty, let's, let's be careful in the sense that we hold to God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We never neglect humans to be responsible. And so, if you ask the question, Jeff, you keep telling me most of the Jews did not return. Why did most not return? We would say, number one, human responsibility. They did not want to go. They freely chose not to go. And they were responsible for that choice. And yet we would also say divine sovereignty. The Lord did not stir them up to go. We see that they loved Babylon. They began to love it. They embraced it. And we'll see more of that in just a little bit. Charles Spurgeon, the old British pastor in the 19th century, uh, was once asked, how can, you, how can you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? doesn't seem like you can reconcile them. And his answer was this, I wouldn't try. I, I never reconcile friends. They're friends. Acts 2.23, Peter lines this out really well, where he blames the, the, the people for crucifying Christ. But he doesn't just blame the people, but he also puts it at the lap of God the Father as well. Listen to what he says, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is divine sovereignty. This is exactly the way that the Father not only predicted but planned. This is exactly the way it's going, perfectly. Judas was not a mistake. Judas was the one chosen. And yet notice what he does, Peter also does by inspiration of the Spirit. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's at your feet what you did. So he holds up divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and we should do the same. And at this point, I would say this, for some of you, if that rattles your brain as much as it does mine, I would tell you just to embrace mystery most of us are not good with mystery. I would encourage you to embrace it. Much biblical doctrine is mystery. We believe it. It is true, but we cannot fully explain it. We could do an exercise right now and have one of the 
younger kids, maybe a kindergartner, come on up. And then maybe some of you that know college calculus very well can come up and you can explain college calculus to the kindergarten child. Well, you laugh. It makes sense. It just doesn't make sense to the kindergartner. Or for that, make, for that sense, it doesn't make sense to me either. But it's true, and we believe it nevertheless. When you consider things like the Trinity, three persons of the Godhead, but one God. Oof. And if you find yourself in that point a little confused, then I am explaining very well divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Yeah, you believe it. Uh, Augustine would say this, I believe in order that I may understand. And let me tell you a warning. If you start saying things like, I need to understand scripture in order to believe it, you're not in a good place. We believe it. We take it by faith in order that we may understand it. And even the understanding will come one day in heaven or maybe not even then. So one last thing is before we go on, does God's sovereignty bother you? Well, consider your options. <laughs> if God's not sovereign, there's a whole, whole lot of things that we just certainly cannot explain and it would, it would drive us to despair. John Piper did a sermon series on different historical figures, and one of them was on Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, he suffered with gout. Some of you in here perked up because you know how painful gout is. Uh, rheumatism and Bright's disease, which is a disease of the kidneys. He was in terrible pain many days. And he wrote this. He would say, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Well, who were these people who God's spirit stirred up? We called them the remnant. It's not a television show. It's, it's, it's a term that's come straight from Scripture. The remnant is a small remaining quantity. It was prophesied in Isaiah 10.22, where Isaiah will say, For through your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. So be encouraged. The Lord enjoys using remnants. Consider Noah's family or Gideon's 300. Now let's go on to verse six. And all who were about them aided them, or literally in the Hebrew, strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts and costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Who are these people? Well, there's, they're not, the scriptures are not using the phrase their brethren. It's these people. It's their neighbors. It's the Babylonians who are giving them these things. You see, the Holy Spirit who wrote the book of Ezra and also wrote the book of Exodus and every other book of the Bible wants us to understand that what you're looking at here is the second Exodus. It's the second one. If you remember in the first Exodus, God defeats Egypt through 10 plagues and then Egypt gave their treasures to the Israelites. Interestingly enough, before God, or rather, before God even sent Moses down to Egypt, before Moses went, God tells him in Exodus 3.22, 
you will plunder the Egyptians. The slaves will plunder the masters. He tells them this. And so finally we see in Exodus 12, verse 35 and 36, the people of Israel also did as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. God keeps his word. And so what do you have now? You've got fast forward, second exodus. Now God defeats Babylon through the Medo-Persians, not the 10 plagues, through the Medo-Persians, and then Babylonians give up their treasures to the Jews, and God plunders the Babylonians. You don't mess with God's people. I'm telling you what. Verse 7 and 8, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the Lord, of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. So let me explain how this works. In 605, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took all the gods, quote-unquote gods, out of the temple. Um, 605, 597, 586, it happened in one of those three times. And so the way it works is that when you defeat a nation, you take away their gods. Um, you lock them up, and you lock them up in the house of your God. Uh, college teams do this, if you will. They'll take the mascot. They shouldn't, but they'll take the mascot and steal it. You know, and this is sort of, it could be, why? Because that mascot is kind of the image of the school. The God is the image of the nation. And so they would lock them up, as, and they would lock them up in the house of their God to show that their God is more powerful. Well, Judah had no images of the Lord. Of course, they had false images of Baal, but they didn't have any images of the Lord. So Nebuchadnezzar instead took the temple utensils in their place and put them in the house of his God. So here it's showing as they're now handing off the temple treasures to these people, these people are really the legitimate heirs of the pre-exilic people of God. They're post-exilic. They're after the exile. These same vessels taken from uh, Jerusalem, I'm, I'm of the opinion that these were the same vessels that the Babylonians were drinking from and eating from on the night that the hand wrote on the wall, mine, mine, tico, farsen. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And so now God is going to use these same utensils and give them to the people so that they can take them back with them. So I would say that although I've tried to clear, clarify that this is the second exodus, it's both uh, better and worse than the first exodus. It's better in that God's people are not going as slaves. Uh, they do have the support of the king, so that's good. It's worse in that they are not going out to form an independent nation. They're still owned by Persia. So Cyrus... He brings, he brings out uh, the treasurer. He counted them out and hands it over to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now you're scratching your heads and say, wait a second, you haven't said a thing about Sheshbazar. Who's he? Well, I'll tell you. And let me give you three options because we don't know exactly who he is. 
The first option would, would be this. Um, Shesh Bazaar and Zerubbabel are really the same person. As you study the book of Daniel, Daniel and Belteshazzar are really the same person. Jewish name, Babylonian name, same guy. Uh, the reason why we would say that is both Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are called the leader. They're called the governor of the first captives to return. And yet, I'll show my cards right now, I, I doubt it. And the reason why I doubt it is because Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are both Babylonian names. It's highly, highly unlikely that a faithful Jew would name his child two Babylonian names. He wouldn't give him a Jewish name? That doesn't make sense. Uh, also, both are described separately in the book of Ezra, and they're doing, different, they're doing different things. So, I don't think so. Let me give you a second option. Uh, Shesh Bazar could be the uncle of Zerubbabel, the uncle of Zerubbabel, who is the fourth son of exiled King Jehoiachin. Um, it's a different spelling, so it's hard to tell if that really is him, but, but it could be, could be the uncle. The third option might be the best one, but I don't know, I kind of like the second one too. Uh, Shesh Bazar might be the official leader of the exiles, but Zerubbabel is the unofficial leader. Why is Zerubbabel the unofficial leader? Because he is the godly grandson of King Jeconia. And you're saying, Jeff, you keep throwing these terms around. Well. You're going to have to do a little study on 2 Chronicles or 2 Kings, and you'll see these words, these terms. But suffice it to say that King Josiah had some really wicked sons, and they reigned after him, and none of them did a good job. Even his own grandson, Jeconia, doesn't do a good job. But strangely enough, in God's providence, uh, the grandson of Jeconia is a godly man named Zerubbabel. All right? Now, verse 9 through 11, let's continue on. And this was the number of them, the number of the utensils from the temple. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, which censers are kind of like frying pans, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So, I need for you to perish this thought in your brain. Are they handing over a bunch of, like, kitchen dishes? Here, take these with you. Throw them in a bag. No, 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 no. Um, a Jewish commentator whose name is Ibn Ezra, in no way related to Ezra here, but strange name. Uh, he says this, the 30 golden bowls were actually used to collect the blood of slaughtered lambs for Jewish sacrifices. While this term 29 censers, the censers actually may not be censers because the term is related to the Hebrew word for knives. And now some of you are thinking, Knives, would those be helpful at the time of sacrifice? Yes, they would. These knives would be used in the ritual slaughter of animals. So this wasn't just, you know, breakfast uh, dishes. No, no, these were used in the temple for the sacrifices. Now at this point, you're wondering, when you look at those numbers, 30 basins, 29 censers, 30, wait, that doesn't add up to 5,400. Well, you're right. That number does not match from the numbers above. 
that may be due to a textual transmission, but I really think it has more to do with these items just listed are really just a selection of a much longer list. Do you all see anything missing in verse 9 through 11 of items that should be in the temple? Maybe things like altar of burnt offerings or bronze laver, table of showbread, the golden lampstand, altar of incense, ark of the covenant. Okay, all right. Why aren't these large temple items listed? Well, we don't know for certain. Um, it may, once again, be a selection. Maybe uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed them all. And yet, just to be clear, once again, don't, don't miss the forest for the trees. These items are showcasing that these people are the heir of the religious practices of Israel. These are God's people, and they're going to do the work of ministry. So I can't mention the Ark of the Covenant without giving you just a short excursion there. There's, but I would say this, there is no evidence that the Babylonians took the Ark when they conquered Jerusalem. And there is no evidence that the returning Jews brought it back with them to Jerusalem. So let's pray. No, I'm kidding. We won't do that. I want to give you five options. Just want to see if you're listening. I want to give you five options here. I, and some people would say, Jeff, you know, you're just giving us a lot of details. There's so much to this. And what I'm trying to do, if you will, I'm trying to paint this picture because so many people, they don't know Ezra from Jude. They don't know Exodus from Job. And I'd like to give you a big picture of the scriptures. It's so important to me. So you can see how this thing kind of comes together in ways that, that really, I think, makes you appreciate exactly what the Lord did and what was going on in the Old Testament in preparation for what the Lord would one day do. So here's your options. Uh, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Number one, uh, it was stolen by Menelik, the son of Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Uh, we don't have that in Scripture in the sense of we don't see that King Solomon uh, got together with the Queen of Sheba or that he married her. But we do see that King of Solomon has 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, he very well may could have married her. Uh, to this day, there's something called the Ark in, located in Ethiopia. They really believe it is the Ark of the Covenant. Might be. I don't know. I've never seen it. Um, but there's a lot of debate on that. Many of the scholars and archaeologists would say no, but that's one option. Number two, a second option is it was taken by Pharaoh of Shishak to Egypt during the reign of King Rehoboam, son of Solomon. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, that is their view. And that's not just a view of the movie, but that really is a view that it was taken by Shishak. Uh, I would push back on that one as well. The reason why is because the last mention of the ark found in Scripture, as far as chronologically, is 2 Chronicles 35.3, where King Josiah, who's now a godly king because the Lord saved him, he asked the Levites to place the ark of the covenant back in the temple to return it. And you're saying, why did they have to take it away? Well, it was probably because his dad and granddad were so wicked they took it out of the temple um, and yet, two questions not answered in that text. Number one, where would the Levites go to retrieve the ark to bring it back to the temple? Where did they hide it? And a second question is, did the Levites actually bring the ark 
back to its original place in the temple, rightful place? We don't know the answer to that either. A third option would be this. It was hidden by Jeremiah, the prophet. 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. By the way, 2 Maccabees, we do not consider inspired. Uh, 1 Maccabees is actually really a historical book. 2 Maccabees is questionable. Uh, but we don't hold it to be scripture, but it's a book nevertheless. Uh, may or may not be true. But uh, it describes Jeremiah following God's revelation that the ark be taken to the mountain where Moses climbed to see the promised land, which is Mount Nebo. Jeremiah arrived and found a room in a cave in which he hid the ark, and then he blocked the entrance. Some people tried to follow the path of Jeremiah and go to find it, but Jeremiah rebuked them and said, the place is to remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. I don't think that one's one either. I think it's one of the last two options. The fourth one is this, it's buried. It's buried in the temple mount it was buried there before Nebuchadnezzar could steal it away. The Temple Mount is modern-day Dome of the Rock. If you're wondering what the most prized uh, piece of real estate in the entire world, it's right there. There's a biblical archaeologist, Rebecca and I were able to go on a mission trip, uh, not a mission trip, tour, if you will, to Israel named Randall Price, and he writes this. He says, no conclusive evidence exists for the existence of the ark nor can its finding place be definitively located. Yet our survey of the biblical, historical, and traditional sources provides sufficient warrant for us to conclude that the ark still exists and would, could be discovered. Therefore, in answer to your question, will the ark ever be discovered, we can say that it is possible. And then finally, the fifth option would be this. The Babylonians broke up the ark as they destroyed the temple. They may have broken it up, melted it down. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says the ark was not in the second temple, never was. Roman uh, commander Pompey confirmed its absence when he basically broke into the temple and he wanted to go to the Holy of Holies and he goes in there and he goes, there's nothing here. Well, of course there's nothing there because the Jews would have taken it away or Nebuchadnezzar may have melted it down hundreds of years ago. We just, we just don't know. The Bible is strangely absent. I will tell you this, though. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. We have Jesus Christ so much better than the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Just to be clear on that. If you find it, I'll be excited, quite honestly, but it's not necessary. So, as we found out last week, God keeps his promises. And what do we see this week? God stirs up the spirits. Three points I'd like to give you. Number one, once again, God stirs up the spirits. The Lord still accomplishes that work today. As he stirred up King Cyrus, he stirs up his people to move Jerusalem. And for us today, each of us who have been chosen by the Father, whom the Son purchased, whom the Spirit drew, the Lord stirred us, rose us from the dead, breathed new life into us, divine heart surgery, taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. And for the first time in our lives, we, we believe. We see the beauty of Christ. It had nothing to do with us. You were dead. So if you're an unbeliever today, or maybe you haven't, we'll put it like this, you haven't come to Christ yet. If you wonder, is the Lord stirring me up today? Your job is just to believe. 
That is your job. The Bible may not give you tingles up and down your neck or even as I preach, but the Bible does give you a command. Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. My point is you need to come to the place of realizing that you are a big sinner deserving of the wrath of God, and it's coming. And you just don't know when it's going to come. And your job right now is to come to the place of trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Turning from sin is your master, and you're taking on a different master, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, a shepherd who loves you, who died for the sins of the world. Trust him today. And if you're a believer, once again, you should note Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is not your end, but it's the beginning. For many believers, they go, hey, for my grace, you're saved through faith, and not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. Done. Instead of looking at Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. God's stirring you up today. Move on. Number two, there's a, there is this delicate balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I love God's sovereignty. Uh, because he has this attribute, he saved me from the beginning uh, from before the world even began, he chose me, his son died for me, his spirit drew me. And I don't know about you, but the word sovereignty is a bit of a scary thing if it's not coupled with God loves you as well. Hitler was sovereign in Germany, and he was wicked. But God is sovereign, and he loves you, right? So I would say, certainly, you need to hold to both divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. As Andrew Murray, the Scotsman, says, the devil does not allow the wind of error to blow long in the same direction. And you have sort of the extremes, the Arminianism, which is an overemphasis on human responsibility to the neglect of God's sovereignty. And then you've got something called huper, uh, the Greek that means hyper, <laughs> above and beyond, a hyperactive child. You know those it's beyond being active, a hyper-Calvinism. It goes beyond what John Calvin preached, which was the same thing that Augustine preached, was the same thing that the Apostle Paul preached, that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and yet God chose you and he saved you, and yet you are responsible to believe. You've got to hold those both together, okay? And finally, number three, uh, from Babylonia to Jerusalem is the way this text ends. Uh, Babylon is a symbol, and always has been, a symbol of the world's fallen city. And whereas Jerusalem is seen as the city of God. So as these Jews are going on their trek, hear me out, you and I are going on the same trek. But we are on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem. As they stepped out in faith, we step out in faith. As they are mistreated for the Lord's sake, we are as well. Even going back to Abraham in Hebrews 11.10, it says that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, i.e. heavenly Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting, uh, the fifth century, the Visigoths, all these barbarians came in and they took over Rome. And no one could believe it because Rome had stood for a thousand years. Many even believers that were in Rome and the Roman Empire had put too much confidence in the empire and they realized that they had moored their boat to the wrong dock 
I'm not saying they were unbelievers, but they had trusted too much in their leaders. Augustine wrote a book at that time called The City of God. And in the book, he presents human history as a conflict between the city of man, Babylon, and the city of God, Jerusalem. And his point is, is only one will triumph. They don't both triumph, only one, and that is the city of God. So I would close with this question for you. Are we marching as pilgrims toward Jerusalem today? Or have we found our home right here in Babylon? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, text. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Help us to be about uh, the work of your people, the work of your son. His name we pray it, amen.